Please turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. The sermon text this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. Following the reading of God's word, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. One day, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home, praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Actions speak louder than words. We've all heard that phrase before. I think we know what it means. When I was in high school, if someone claimed to be a great basketball player, someone might say, well, he can talk the talk, but can he walk the walk? And when he got on the basketball court, we would all find out whether he was really a good basketball player or not. Some of you, because we're in Texas, might say the phrase, he's all hat and no cattle. It essentially means the same thing. Here, in this passage, we have a big statement of Jesus' authority. But we also have a sign given, an action given, to back up that statement. A statement and a sign. Those are the two things I want us to consider today. First, Jesus' statement of his authority, and second, the sign of his authority. First, the statement of his authority. From the very, very beginning of the book of Luke, we are told that Jesus is essentially separated from sinners. He's conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin, Mar- in the, of the virgin Mary. Why? In order that he could be a high priest who is unstained by sin. We see when he goes to be baptized that John the Baptist says, I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, not the other way around. 
we see that he comes in con- conflict with the forces of darkness. In Luke chapter 4, when he goes to Nazareth and he preaches, the demons cry out, you are the Holy One, the Son of God. Jesus casts them out and bids them to be silent. Paradoxically, we see that people are attracted to Jesus at the same time they're repelled from Him. Here's what I mean. When Jesus calls His disciples, He calls Peter, and what does Peter say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. They recognize there's something unusual and holy about this teacher. Later on in this same chapter, Jesus will say that I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He will have a reputation as one who dines with tax collectors and sinners. So he's simultaneously with us and yet removed from us, above us, as holy. Here, the big statement of Jesus' authority comes in verse 24 when he says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's a very significant statement. This passage would have been a very well-known account of Jesus' life. That's why it's recorded for us not only in Luke 5, it's recorded for us also in Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 2. In those passages, we're told that Jesus was in Capernaum. This probably took place in Capernaum. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, have come from every village along with the crowds from Galilee, from Judea, even to Jerusalem. Jesus' name and fame is growing. Some friends of a paralyzed man hear that this teacher has great authority and power, so they devise a plan to take their friend to Jesus. But there's a twist. They can't get in. The house is full. What are they going to do? And they take this man up, probably a staircase on the side of a house, and they cut a hole in the roof. I was a builder for three years, so I know what nowadays roofs are made of, asphalt shingles, perhaps some OSB below that, and it's slanted, but that's not the way these roofs would have been made. Probably they would not have been made with the tile, even though this says tile, wouldn't have been made the tile that we think of and put in our kitchen and bathroom. What it would have been made of would have been reeds and thistles and grass all together with clay packed together and put on top of timber, probably about two feet thick, according to some commentators. This would have been a huge job for these friends. It would have been significant. It might have taken them a lot of time. They might have had to use some kind of saw or instrument. I don't know. We're not told. But after they finally succeed and they lower this man down to the feet of Jesus, there's another twist. Jesus doesn't do what they were hoping he would do. Verse 20, Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Why does Jesus say that? Why doesn't he just heal this man? My thoughts are drawn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which I think could be a commentary on this episode. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, that 
we have a light and momentary affliction that is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I think that Jesus Christ was looking at the unseen eternal state of this man's soul. That's what he saw. He saw what was most significant about this man. The most significant thing was not that he was paralyzed. The most significant thing was that he needed to be cleansed from sin. This is a remarkable statement. It means that what Jesus cares about while he cares about the body, he cares most about the spiritual state of our souls, what's taking place inside of us. Every sin that you and I have ever committed is not only against God, but because Jesus Christ is God come in the flesh, every sin that we've committed is ultimately against Him. He and He alone has the authority to forgive our sins. That's why the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they can't handle this. They say, who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They know exactly what Jesus is claiming, and it is a significant claim. It also is significant because Jesus doesn't say, I forgive one sin or two sins, but all sins. Your sins are forgiven you. How significant is that? Did these men have faith? I believe they did. In verse 20, it says, when Jesus saw their faith. Now, the man himself does not confess. He does not repent. We don't have evidence of that here in this passage. But perhaps, perhaps he yearned to be clean just as he longed to be healed. Perhaps that's what Jesus Christ saw. It says in verse 22 that Jesus knew what the scribes were thinking. Perhaps Jesus also knew what this man was thinking. Perhaps he wanted to be healed and forgiven of sin. John chapter 6 says this, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus Christ could have rebuked these men for what they did. Who knows, the homeowners were probably pretty angry and upset about what was happening, but Jesus wasn't. He welcomed this man, and he will welcome you too if you come to him. We also see the love and conviction and persistence of these friends. They love this man enough to overcome all of the obstacles in their way. They have a conviction about who Jesus is, that he is strong to save. They have persistence that is undaunted by the challenges in their way, and they should be commended for their love and care. Of course, we see the love and conviction and persistence of God himself in this passage. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who is it that brought you to faith in the Lord Jesus? Who brought you to the throne of grace? I know in my own life, perhaps the biggest uh, person or persons who brought me there to the, the throne of grace was my parents. 
I was one of those fortunate few who had a, a loving father and mother who confessed faith in Christ and who pointed me to the throne of grace from a very young age. They gave me a Bible, which I still have today. It's, in fact, this very Bible, believe it or not, I have had for many, many years. Who brought you to the throne of grace? Parents are in a tough position in some sense because they can talk about Jesus and they can proclaim the love of Christ. They can bring their kids to church, but the children see their walk and they want to know, are they walking in faithfulness before the Lord? Inevitably, they will see that we are sinful because everybody is sinful. Even the best parents are sinful. But we pray and hope that God would bring His love and compassion to them and that they in due time would profess faith and that they would hear the voice of Jesus Christ saying, friend, your sins are forgiven you. This is what Phil Riken has said about this passage. Jesus' healing compassion is not just for you, but also for the people you love well enough to bring to Him. Your hands are the hands that God uses to reach out to people no one else is willing to touch. Your arms are the arms that He uses to carry people to Christ. Your voice is the voice He uses to sing His glorious praise. Amen. May the Lord delight to use our church to encourage people in their walk. That's why when children say their catechism, we give them a Bible and encourage them. And when someone graduates from high school, we give them a Bible and pray for them. We want to be an encouragement and a love to people in their, their faith and their walk with the Lord. Jesus not only gives a statement of his authority, he gives a sign of his authority. What's the sign? Well, the sign clearly here is the miracle. The miracle. And before I say, go into that, let me say one last thing about the forgiveness of sins, his statement of authority. We say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. It is one of the essential articles of the Christian faith that has been around from the very beginning. But the church has sometimes confused its people how exactly we are forgiven. That's why in the time of the Reformation, there was confusion the church had a whole system of how you might pay off your own sins or pay for your sins, pay for the forgiveness of sins or pay for the forgiveness of other people or have time off of purgatory if you put a coin in the coffer. But the glorious truth of the Reformation was the justification by grace through faith of our sins. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons us of our sin and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Christ's righteousness is credited to us. Our sin is given to him. That's the substitution at the heart of forgiveness. His righteousness given to me, my sins given to him, that all who confess faith in Christ, are credited his righteousness. We see in verse 23 the sign of his authority. It's interesting that he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What is Jesus saying? What does he mean when he says, which is easier to say? I think what he means is actions speak louder than words. If, if someone says, you're forgiven of your sins, you want to know, does he have the authority to forgive sins? By what authority is he saying that? If someone goes into a hospital and says to a paralyzed man, rise up and walk, but that paralyzed man does not get up and walk, you know immediately that this person does not have the authority and power that they're claiming to have. Jesus not only has hat, but he has the cattle. He's not all hat, but no cattle. He says to this man, rise up and walk, and immediately he does. He does this not because he thinks that this is what's really fundamentally the most important thing that this man needs, but he says it rather to show that the authority to forgive sins does belong to him. That's why he says, that you may know the Son of Man on earth has authority to forgive sins. It's verification. The sign, this miracle is a verification that Jesus is who he claims to be, the great Savior come in the flesh. Here's what one commentator said about this man's testimony. Can you imagine what this man's testimony would be for the rest of his life? He goes around and, hey, you were paralyzed once, now you're walking. What happened? And he would be able to say, this is what happened. Jesus Christ came and he forgave my sins and then he healed me. Here's what one commentator said. This indisputable miracle shall be to this man a sign, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off, that God has pardoned him and spoken peace to his soul. And this God shall be his God forever and ever. To every soul that is in a similar case of that poor paralyzed man lying and repenting and believing at the feet of Jesus, his word gives the comfortable assurance, believe, and your sins, which are many, are all forgiven thee. Believe it and go thy way in peace. Amen. This is a great joy as a pastor to be able to proclaim, not my own authority, but on the authority of God's word, that if you confess your sins with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, indeed, man, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, when he preached on this passage in 1524, this is what he said. Our confidence and boast against sin is that I can say to my brother who's stuck in the anguish and danger of sin, be cheerful and comforted, my brother, because your sins have been forgiven. Even though I cannot give you the Holy Spirit and faith, I can nevertheless proclaim this to you. That's my great joy. I have no power to give you the Spirit. I have no power to give you faith in myself but Jesus Christ, the head of the church who speaks through his word today does. And he says that if you put your faith in him, your sins are forgiven. I got to read the remarkable testimony this week of Eric Watkins. You might have read about his testimony in the email that I sent out, but he was a young man about 12 years old when his father left his family and he turned to an alcohol and drug addiction for comfort. 
He ended up following the Grateful Dead around the country for an early part of his life. But his sister gave him a Bible, and he read in the Bible about the good news of salvation. His life was forever changed, and he's been now a pastor for 22 years. The glorious thing is that he knew that he was a sinner. The gospel comes in two stages. First, you need to know you're a sinner. Second, you need to know that Jesus Christ is the one who has authority to forgive, and there is no other place to find forgiveness. And the wonderful thing about his testimony is that not only was he forgiven, but many years later, his father became a Christian too. And not only was Eric put right between God, but his father came back to his family and on his knees asked forgiveness. And he was able, Eric, by the power of the Spirit in him, to forgive his father. This is the glorious thing about forgiveness. It works not only vertically between us and God, but it has the power to restore broken relationships horizontally between you and other people. It's at the heart of the Christian faith. It's at the heart of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Hear this from Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful, wonderful explanation of the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews chapter 7 says this, that we have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Consequently, Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Have you heard the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel say to you through his word, friend, your sins are forgiven you? There is no greater comfort than that, to know that our sins have been forgiven, to know that my sins have been forgiven. And the great love and the persistence of these friends here in this passage is the love and the persistence that is exemplified in God himself when he sends his son to go to the cross for us. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today and hear him say to you, friend, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we confess to you that like this paralyzed man, we need to be cleansed. This is what is fundamentally wrong with us, that we are sinners in desperate need of forgiveness. We pray that you would not only convict us of sin, but help us, Lord, to draw near to the throne of grace and be able to find assurance in our time of need, that we would not only hear it proclaimed from the pulpit and from your word that we've been forgiven, but that your spirit would comfort us and that we would have the assurance of peace with you that can come only through your word and your spirit. Help us, Lord, to be a church that loves people persistently, that loves them genuinely, that cares about them and brings them to the throne of grace, that they too would be able to find help and forgiveness in their time of need.
Help us to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel, that the authority to forgive does not belong to the church or to me personally, but it belongs to you. The power and authority belong to you and to you alone. We pray that the people who need you, who come into our doors and sit down in our pews, that they would hear the the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, rise, get up and walk, and that you would breathe into them the breath of life and that they would rise to a new life. We pray this all in Jesus Christ's name and by his authority. Amen.